this is Tuesday morning. Uh, we have, uh, I guess, three days of class left at this point. Um, hope everyone's doing well. I've graded all the exams. Um, I will release a um, answer key um, probably later this afternoon. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Um, let's see if I have any other announcements right now. Quiz tomorrow. If you haven't already, please sign up for the um, uh, video conference that we'll have. Um, I will send out a link for that uh, in the announcement as well. So you can have, have that link available to you. And then uh, one more lecture after today and the test Friday, and you've completed the GPS 220 um, for, for summer school. So, all right, let's get started. Um, an unfinished test. So we are now uh, the night of April 26th, uh, 1986, the fateful night of the explosion. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to uh, watch the, the very short YouTube video clip to kind of show you um, what happened that night. And I'll, I'll try to discuss it again in more detail as best as a political scientist can. But, to, you know, the, the big to do of today's lecture is sort of talking about the aftermath. And really, you know, I don't know if you've asked yourself this question yet, but, you know, the, the last two books that we've read are really dealing with the interaction between, you know, what we might broadly define as health outcomes and the role that the government or the state plays in providing those outcomes. So of course the American pandemic book was about, you know, public health infrastructure and designing and building that. And this book is about, you know, the, the lead up to the disaster at Chernobyl and then also the aftermath, right? The, the, the decisions that the Soviet system would make um, to in some cases, or in many cases, cover up what had happened that would end up harming their own people in addition to harming um, the world. And so I think uh, when we come back from break, I'll show you uh, um, a map of how far the nuclear fallout traveled. Um, and it was just, it's quite amazing once you, once you see that. But let's start with the test itself. All right, an unfinished test. So on April 26, 1986, a test was conducted to figure out uh, the, a key safety system in reactor four in the event of a blackout. So basically what this test was supposed to do is to figure out um, whether or not the backup generators and backup systems would go into place in the event that the, the reactor itself lost all power. Okay. So if there was a blackout that totally shut down um, the Chernobyl station, <clears throat> Chernobyl station, what would happen to the reactor? All right. So essentially imagine like powering down, think of those um, light switches like that have a dimmer switch that you can kind of slowly make the light dimmer. That's what we're sort of talking about here, right? We're slowly gonna power down the reactor to make sure that the safety mechanisms kick in when the reactor is powered all the way down, all right? Time was of the essence. They had pushed this test back before and the inspectors that had showed up to conduct the test threatened to leave if that test was not done that night. So the test was was done, you know, they started conducting the test around midnight and then by kind of 1.30, I think around sometime around that time, 1.30 in the morning, um, the you know what hits the fan. So like we said, it involves slowly powering down the reactor without compromising it. Now, let's go back to what we had said uh, last time. The reactor is so big that there is always a threat of a chain reaction, all right? That the reactions 
among these, you know, uh, um, rods that are kind of moving in and out, these graphite rods that are moving in and out will go unstable and it will set off a chain reaction that could lead to really, really negative consequences. Well, what is one way that you could lead to an unstable reaction if you power the generator down too quickly? All right. So keep that in mind. All right. Let's talk about Anatoly Dyatlov for a moment. We've talked about Toptanov, we've talked about Akimov, we've talked about Brukhanov so far, and now we're going to introduce you to the fourth individual in the story that is really, really important, and that is Anatoly Dyatlov. Anatoly Dyatlov was the deputy chief engineer of the plant responsible for coordinating the test. So he is sort of the top dog at the plant on a day-to-day -day basis, all right? That's Dyatlov. So Brukhanov is... is is over the whole kind of operation of the plant itself. But Dyatlov is there on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, dealing with the reactors themselves, as it were. So, so he's a, a really important figure. Um, Dyatlov has a very, very prickly personality, very hard to deal with. Uh, as the book sa says, he's, he's borderline abusive with his coworkers. And this personality trait probably led him to make decisions that ultimately would compromise the reactor. He likely pushed the test to its breaking point. And so Tatanov and Alexander Akimov uh, manned the board that night. They were the people responsible for controlling the switches, moving the control rods around in the reactor, and Dyatlov was giving the, um, the instructions. I haven't mentioned this yet, um, but maybe you already know this. Uh, this book, Midnight in Chernobyl, is the text that was used, the primary source that was used in an HBO miniseries by the same name, sorry, called Chernobyl, um, which was a six-part uh, miniseries based on this book. Now, really, most of the book, um, or sorry, most of the series begins with the explosion. Everything we've done so far is not in the series, so you, I'm not telling you you can go and watch this HBO miniseries and be able to take your test on Thursday. But I do want to tell you um, that or, or encourage you if you have hbo max or you have access to an hbo account and you can watch chernobyl if what we've talked about the last couple days has interested you please 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 go back and watch that mini series um the Atloff is a featured character in that um, mini series as well as brukhanov uh akimov and Tuktanov also play a role um as well as uh well a number of people that, or a couple of people that we haven't discussed yet but we'll, we'll see very very soon so if you read Midnight in Chernobyl and you say, oh, this is fascinating, I'd like to learn more, please, please watch the HBO Max miniseries um, called Chernobyl. It is quite fascinating. It really starts with the explosion. That's where that miniseries really begins. Okay. Destabilizing re the reactor. Forcing the shutdown so quickly jeopardized the integrity of the reactions. It's something I've been previewing for you already. The reactor itself is too big. And so any sort of sudden movements... Um, literal or figurative in, in, in the way I'm using that term there, uh, can compromise those reactions and set up a chain reaction that could literally blow the top off the reactor. Let's turn to page 86 and 87 and discuss what that looked like. Second paragraph. Shut down the reactor, Akimov said in a level voice. He waved his hand in the air. AZ-5. Akimov lifted a transparent plastic cover on the control panel. Toptanov pushed his finger through the paper seal and pressed the circular red button beneath. After exactly 36 seconds, the test was over. 
The reactor has been shut down, Toptanov said. High above them in the reactor hall, the rod's electric servo motors whirred. The glowing displays on the 211 Selsun motors on the wall showed their slow descent into the reactor. One meter, two meters. Inside the core, what happened ne next took place so fast that it outstripped the recording capacity of the reactor instrumentation. Now, this is going to be the, the most, what I'm going to read to you is going to be the most sort of specific explanation for what happened that night that caused the explosion. For one scant second, the boron carbide-filled upper sections of the rods entered the top of the reactor. Sorry. For one scant second, as the boron carbide-filled upper sections of the rods entered the top of the reactor, overall reactivity fell just as it was supposed to. But then the graphite tips began to displace the water in the lower part of the core, adding to the positive void effect, generating steam and more reactivity. A local critical mass formed in the bottom of the reactor. After two seconds, the chain reaction began to increase at an unstoppable speed, blooming upward and outward through the core. In the control room, just as the staff was expecting to relax, the SIUR's enunciator panel suddenly lift, uh, lit up with frightening succession of alarms. The warning lamps for power excursion rate emergency increase and emergency power protection system flashed red. Electric buzzers squawked angrily. Toptanov shouted out, the, out a warning. Power surge. Shut down the reactor, Akimanov, uh, Akimov repeated, yelling this time. All right, so this is what occurred following that 30-second or so power down of the reactor. It still occurred too quickly, creating this chain reaction that was itself unstable and compromised the integrity of the nuclear you know, fission process that was taking place inside um, reactor four. All right, let me continue to read on. Standing at the turbine desk 20 meters away, Yuri uh, Tregov heard what he thought was the sound of a turbine number eight continuing to decelerate like a Volga driving at full speed and then beginning to slow down. Woo, 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 woo. But then it grew to a roar and the building started to vibrate ominously around him. He thought it was a side effect of the test, but the reactor was destroying itself. Within three seconds, thermal power leapt to more than a hundred times maximum in the lower southeast quadrant of the core a handful of fuel channels overheated rapidly rapidly, and the fuel pellets approached melting point. As the temperature climbed toward 3,000 degrees centigrade, the zirconium alloy casing of the assembly softened, ruptured, and then exploded, dispersing small pieces of metal and uranium dioxide into the surrounding channels, where they instantly evaporate, eva evaporated the surrounding water into steam. Then the channels themselves broke apart. The AZ-5 rods jammed at their halfway point. All eight emergency steam release valves of the reactor's protection system snapped open, but the mechanisms were quickly overwhelmed and disintegrated. Now let's go to page 88. At 1.24 a.m., very top of the paragraph, at 1.24 a.m., there was a tremendous roar probably caused as a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen that had formed inside the reactor space and suddenly ignited. The entire building shuddered as reactor number four was torn apart by a catastrophic explosion equivalent to as much as 60 tons of TNT. The blast caromed off the walls of the reactor vessel, tore open the hundreds of pipes of steam and water circuit, 
and tossed the upper biological shield into the air like a flipped coin. It swatted away the 350-ton refueling machine, wrenched the high bay bridge crane from its overhead rails, demolished the upper walls of the reactor hall, and smashed open the concrete roof, revealing the night sky beyond. So, you know, imagine, well, you don't even have to imagine, it tells us. There's this reactor, it blows the lid off, and now nothing but exposed skies above, with particles filtering into the air. In that moment, the core of the reactor was completely destroyed. Almost seven tons of uranium fuel, together with pieces of control rods, zirconium channels, and graphite blocks, were pulverized into tiny fragments and sucked high into the atmosphere, forming a mixture of gases and aerosols carrying radioisotopes, including iodine-131, neptunium-239, cesium-137, strontium-90, and plutonium-239, among the most dangerous substances known to man. If you're a chemistry major or chemistry minor, those elements uh, should, should be familiar to you and you understand the danger uh, associated with nuclear fallout. All right, let's take our break right here. When we return, we'll talk about the aftermath or the beginning, I should say, of the aftermath of that initial explosion. We'll stop right here. All right, we are back. Uh, we're looking at a map right now, and I just wanted to show you this briefly. Um, so here's Chernobyl. Uh, the black dot right there, or black square, I should say. And what you see here is with the dark red into the orange is pretty much the level of radiation as it spreads through the air, essentially. So um, as we'll find out later on, Sweden and Finland are the first two countries outside of the Soviet Union to detect that something is wrong. So if you look at this, Look at this red. So this is, you know, radiation directly beside Chernobyl with the same intensity as will occur in Sweden. Why? Because this is just the way the airflow pattern is going. So for example, you can just sort of trace that the air is moving eastward and then northwest, and then it will move southwest as well. And so you know, even though Lithuania is right beside Belarus and Ukraine, the radiation will miss it based on the way the air is channeling here. All right. You can almost sort of see like the United Kingdom, you know, how it kind of moves almost like this. Right. Um, and again, if you're looking at this map right now, if you're on the podcast, you need to, you know, look at the, go back and look at the video. You can sort of see the flow of the air and why and how some parts were touched and others weren't just based on where the air was going so pretty interesting stuff there um and uh, as it turns out sweden is the one that will let the international community know that something is not right um in in chernobyl okay so we have an explosion all right we have an explosion and the fire brigade is called in and the firefighters go to what they thought they were fighting was a fire all right and instead 
they were, of course, fighting nuclear fallout. All right. Um, one of the things I want to touch on very, very briefly is the role of first responders in any kind of really tragic event. Okay. Um, one of the largest populations of, of, of individuals lost during 9 11 um, outside of the employees of the World Trade uh, Towers was a, a unit of uh, transit cops from Jersey City, New Jersey, all right, who were the first to show up. Um, and as they were on their rescue efforts to try to get people out and to, to try to, you know, carton off the, the area, um, the towers collapsed upon them, lo losing an entire unit of uh, Jersey City transit, uh, um, transit cops. So the role of first responders in any kind of tragic event is, is, is pretty serious, and this was no different um, in, in Chernobyl. Um, those firefighters are going to go directly into um, a scene of excruciating amounts of radiation, though they don't fully understand it, and also a fire that's, what did we say, 2600 centigrade or something like that. Uh, they were not made aware of the seriousness of what was happening. They were just called to fight a fire. And they actually did put out the fire over time. Um, by the morning, the fire itself would be pretty much out. But that really wasn't the issue at hand. All right. So if we could, let's look at page 102 and page 110 to kind of describe to you what this looked like. So the fire brigade has gotten to the scene, and then it goes something like this. In the darkness around their feet were hundreds of sources of lethal ionizing radiation, lumps of graphite, fragments of fuel assemblies, and pellets of the reactor's uranium dioxide fuel itself scattered across the rooftops and emitting fields of gamma rays reaching thousands of rogen an hour. Rogen is how they measure basically radiation. So you'll see that word a couple times, and it's just a measurement uh, is what it is. Yet Pravik and the others were driven on by a more tangible threat. The fires on the roof of Unit 3, directly above the reactor. A breeze was blowing from the west, threatening to spread any one of the small blazes downwind toward reactors 2 and 1, both of which were still running. If these fires weren't brought under control, the entire station would soon be engulfed in disaster. Pravik moved quickly. Together with Kibinok and his men, they brought hoses to the roof. Pravik ordered his pump trucks connected to the dry stand pipes designed to distribute water to the height of the building through the plant's fire suppression system. When the pumps were turned on, air whistled through the hoses. Give me some pressure, Pravik yelled on the radio. It was no use. The stand pipes had been smashed in the explosion. Let's turn now to page 110. By 6.35 a.m. on Saturday, 37 fire crews, 186 firemen, and 81 engines had been summoned to Chernobyl from all over Kiev, all over the Kiev region. Together, they had managed to extinguish all the visible fires around the buildings of reactor number four. The deputy fire chief for the Kiev district declared the emergency over. And yet from inside the remains of the reactor building, wisps of black smoke and something that looked like steam continued to twist upward, drifting slowly into the bright, spring sky. Picking his way through fallen debris to the end of the derator corridor, senior unit engineer Bor Boris Stoyarchik leaned out through one of the shattered windows of the reserve control room and craned his neck to look down. Dawn had broken. The light was crisp and clear. 
What Stoyarchuk saw did not frighten him, but he was struck by one thought. I'm so young, and it's all over. Reactor number four was gone. In its place was a simmering volcano of uranium fuel and graphite, a radioactive blaze that would prove all but impossible to extinguish. Um, other than uh, an initial plant worker, some of the first victims uh, of the Chernobyl disaster will be firefighters who are going to succumb to serious radiation poisoning um, over the next few days and weeks, um, and they will succumb to the injuries related to that. All right, let's go back now to page 105 and 106 and talk about government secrets. We mentioned some government secrets uh, the other day about the building uh, of Chernobyl itself, and now we have this explosion, all right? And now we have more government secrets. Let's look at what this entails. Page 105. Third paragraph. Viktor Petrovich, he said, we need to make an announcement. This is, uh, he's discussing this with Brukhanov. That's who Viktor Petrovich is. Um, it's common in Slavic languages to call someone by what they call their patronymic, which is a version of a middle name, but really a patronymic is identifying your name with your father's name. So Viktor Petrovich is Viktor, son of Peter, basically. Viktor Petrovich, he said, we need to make an announcement. But the director told him to wait. He wanted more time to think. So Vorobayev went back outside and got into his car to gather more data. As he drove around the plant toward Unit 4, the needle on DP-5 swung up to 20 Rochin per hour. He then passed the electrical substation, and the Rochin kept going and going and going and going. All right. What did Brukhanov do? He stalled. This is the third paragraph on page 106. Still, Brukhanov stalled. He said he would wait for Kor uh, Korobanyakov, head of the plant's radiation safety team, and then make his own assessment. At 3 a.m., Brukhanov called his party boss in Moscow and the Ministry of Internal Affairs in Kiev with a situation report. He described an explosion and partial collapse of the turbine hall roof. The radiation situation, he said, was being clarified. The explosion occurs at like, you know, midnight-ish. By 2 a.m., people should have been evacuating the area, and they weren't. They would stay for several more days. They would stay all the way through May 1st, in fact. Children, women, workers at the local movie theater, school teachers are going to stay in the Chernobyl region for the next three or four days inhaling the, this awful radiation. And this has to do again with the Soviet system itself and its... Um, necessity to keep secrets because if you told people what was really happening it threatened the system itself all right there's a very very poignant scene i believe in the first episode of the chernobyl series closer toward the end of the episode where basically brukhanov goes to tell the um you know all of the bigwigs in the soviet system the local the, the the local and, and then some from moscow you know, the problems that are occurring, but he doesn't tell them kind of fully. And then people don't really want to listen either. And so he's getting reports from inside the plant that the situation is really, really bad. The outlaw is saying, no, it's not as bad as people are saying. This is a, this is a hoax, basically. 
um, yeah, that we had a we had a small fire. We put it out. No big deal. Every minute that goes by with this, what will become a cover up is going to do more harm to the people living in that area, the people working in that area. And already people are suffering because they're not being completely honest about what's happening. It is not until that nuclear fallout gets to Sweden that uh, the Soviet Union begins to open up and sort of admit the seriousness of what begins to happen. We'll talk more about that uh, on Wednesday. And again, I'll have an answer key for you later this afternoon. And I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you.